Hey Fredster, welcome to the 8th episode of Beat Your Imposter, the podcast dedicated to defeating your brain at its own game. I'm your host Eden, and you can find me on Twitter at Eden Waffles. If you missed the last episode, I can give you a quick recap. We talked about anxiety, we talked about how it's connected to our imposter, and we talked about some of the more unusual ways our imposters can freak us out. We also talked about some ways that we can help ourselves calm down and feel a little more grounded in a situation of high stress, especially when your imposter is the size of a building. It's very difficult to conduct yourself in a calm, cool, collected manner when you have negative voices telling you that you don't belong. Today, we will be discussing the depression component in imposter syndrome. We'll be talking about why we feel this way. We'll be talking about some symptoms that you might experience when you're having a depressive episode with an imposter. And we'll also be discussing some helpful tips that we can follow when we feel burnt out or when we feel down, when our imposter gets us down. The usual disclaimer before we begin, this podcast is not a substitute for professional therapy. It is not here to cure or fix you. The ideas in this podcast are intended to be used as instruments of thought, insight, and discussion into the issues of self-esteem, anxiety, and our careers. So with that out of the way, let's get into it. First topic... Topic one, why your imposter will never let you be happy forever. So the thing about our imposters are we have to accept that the imposter is a part of our brain that we will probably never get rid of. Our imposter is like a manifestation of many of the trials that we had to go through as children and teenagers and now into our adulthoods. We are given a specific set of rules and expectations that we are expected to obey and achieve. And we can go, we can either be, as as we discussed back in the parenting episode, we can either be pushed to be our best or we can be compared to be the worst. And after a while, these things build up. These expectations begin to metamorphosize into things like the inability to start a task because somebody has done it before. We have talked about this before in the types of imposters. That would be the achiever mindsets way back in, I believe it was episode two, the rugged individualist identified by Valerie Young is often the person who will never start a task or follow through with an idea because somebody's done it before. So as we're young, as we're going through life and we are left with these impressions and expectations that people have set on us, as we reach adulthood and we start our working lives and our careers, we begin applying the external expectations that others have placed on us internally. They begin to translate into a negative voice, 
negative presence or the imposter, our imposter. I'm going to talk now, I'm going to bring you way back to the beginning of the podcast when we talked about the imposter cycle. Oh man, this is episode two. <laughs> so we'll go through it again just to refresh your memory. The cycle always starts with you feeling anxious, feeling doubtful about your level of intelligence, competence, and experience. Sometimes you'll feel like a fraud, and maybe it's only a matter of time before you're found out. Then something good happens. You're given a contract, a client, a job, a piece of work. Maybe you have an idea for a project or something that you want to pursue. And then your worries begin to intensify. You start wondering if you deserve the success of that good thing that you've been given because of your levels of competence, intelligence, and experience. We then have two options. We can either work hard and compensate for those feelings and just find cover-up strategies to distract us from those negative thoughts, or we can procrastinate, feel self-doubt, and then rush to complete the work at the last moment or just never even attempt it. This then brings about two consequences of these actions. Each action has its own consequence. If you worked hard to compensate for your feelings, then the task is completed and it brings you feelings of relief and a temporary boost of confidence. As a result of this action, the task is completed, bringing you feelings of relief, temporary boost of confidence, or maybe some feelings of guilt as well if you had to rush to finish it, or the opportunity is missed. The project isn't started, the project isn't finished, the job is lost for whatever reason, and that brings you feelings of guilt and shame. Then your performance is reviewed, either by yourself or by a peer. Any positive feedback that is given is just pushed aside and negative feedback is met with guilt, shame, and self-doubt. You may also feel extreme sensitivity when it comes to criticism, so what was perceived as constructive criticism was actually quite an ego blow to you. It's very sensitive, you're very precious with your projects. And then the next step, which is the last step of the cycle, where your worries about your level of competence, your skills, and your intelligence begin again. And now back to number one. It is a cycle. It is a circle and it just keeps going around and around and around. If we look a little deeper, particularly steps four, five, and eight, these are actually key areas where the depressed imposter will appear. You might have identified them in your career as burnout and you're actually not too far from the mark there if you have. When you get yourself tangled into a mess of your performance, your self-esteem, your careers, and your life, it's really easy to get stressed out. And it's really easy to get so stressed that you will literally burn yourself out. You may be thinking, well, that's interesting, but how can I prevent getting to that particular point where I am burnt out? And that's actually a very tough one to answer because often stress will just be piled on in very small, slow increments. So you might be a parent who is trying to start a business or go back to work to follow their career 
you now have expectations of being the perfect parent as well as the perfect worker. As a result, your relationship with your spouse suffers. So you have to start focusing on that, which then adds more to the pile, to your plate of things that you have to do. And then your job starts slipping because you're not getting enough sleep at night time because your kids are sick or you're up fighting with your spouse or your life is impacting on your job. So your work performance suffers. More stress is added there. You might even self-medicate with a little bit of alcohol or cigarettes or something bad on top of that. So you're then spending more money to help keep yourself calm in a state of stress, in a situation where things just keep getting added to you. And now we've got the money component that now is on there (laughs) because these things cost money and they're quite expensive to purchase. So then it gets to a point where you're worrying so much about your job and your performance. You're worrying about your family. You're worrying about your spouse. You're worrying about your, your partner and your relationship with them. You're worrying about money. You're worrying about paying rent, paying bills. You're worrying about so many things that it just short circuits your brain. And one morning you feel, you wake up and you go, I don't don't want to do this anymore. And you hit burnout. I don't know if you've heard of this But I love this analogy whenever I talk about depression. It's known as the black dog analogy. And it's essentially a metaphor to describe depression. And it was actually coined by Winston Churchill. So it goes pretty far back. But it is a popular analogy. I have read illustrated books. Uh, I believe the one that I'm thinking of is called I Had a Black Dog and His Name is Depression. Yes, that's it. And... It's used quite a bit to describe depression at its finest, I suppose. Uh, there is a, there is a point. <laughs> so the dog's size is relative to your feelings of depression. The worse you feel, the bigger the weight on your chest, the bigger the weight on your shoulders, the bigger the weight of the world, I suppose. It's hard to see the things that you need to do on a daily basis or the things that you that you want to do when your vision is blocked by a big black dog. So I love this metaphor because I feel like the black dog is the most relatable analogy I've ever heard when it comes to depression. Another thing to consider when we want to identify burnout or a depressive episode during the the imposter cycle. It's also hard to know not just the amount of things that you have to look after, the amount of balls you have to juggle, the amount of things that you have to worry about, but you also need to know where your threshold for stress is. And for some people it's really, really quite high, and for some people it's really quite low. It's okay to be a little bit stressed. And I think everybody has things that they worry about. The depressive component in imposter syndrome is like the backlash to the anxiety component. So you're getting so stressed out and you're getting so built up and worked up over things that eventually you just hit a point where you cannot continue any longer and that is the response to the anxiety. 
So the burnout is the depression component. I'll leave it there for topic one. We can see there that burnout and depression are very similar. Let's get into topic two, which is what kinds of depressive symptoms will you experience with imposter syndrome? Okay, so major depressive disorder is what I'm going to refer to today. I have a lot of experience with major depressive disorder as it is a part of my mental health, unfortunately. (laughs) Fortunately, but unfortunately, it's good that I know a lot about it, but it's bad because I know a lot about it. (laughs) So I'm going to lean back and let the Bible of the psychological world take over, which is the DSM-5. We're going to talk about major depressive disorder and how it's defined in the DSM-5. What I'd like you to pay attention to while I'm talking about major depressive disorder is the types of symptoms that you have experienced during a period of burnout. It's important to know that what you're feeling could be a component of short-term depression. Major depressive disorder is usually characterized by discrete episodes of altered behavior that last for at least two weeks in duration. Most episodes are much, much longer than this, and they usually involve clear-cut changes in effect cognition and neurovegetative functions with inter-episode remissions. Inter-episode remissions is a fancy way of saying you might be fine for a while, but then you'll remember something bad and that will just pull you back down into your depressive state again. So a diagnosis for major depressive disorder is usually based on several episodes. So it's not very often that it will be given to just one particular episode And if you notice that your periods of burnout are only a couple of weeks long, then they could potentially be imposter burnout or our our imposter depression setting in, potentially anyway. But when we talk about major depressive disorder, we have to look at many different components in what is going on in your life. We have to look at whether a a professional will have to look at whether your feelings are coming from one particular thing, such as bereavement or death in the family, or whether your feelings are connected to a particular situation, such as your job really stresses you out. Or it could just be something that you can't control. If you can't control how you feel and you can't control when you are feeling sad and when you are feeling better, then this could potentially be major depressive disorder. If you do feel that way, I don't think you should be listening to this podcast. I think you should be going to see a psychiatrist or a professional to get yourself professionally diagnosed and to get on the right track to feeling good. You deserve to feel good. So let's talk about 
the symptoms. So we're going to talk now about the symptoms. So as I said earlier, I'd like you to pay careful, I'd like you to pay careful attention to the symptoms because you may notice or you may agree that you have felt particularly like this during a depressive period, a depressive episode, an imposter depressive episode, <laughs> an imposter depressive episode. Symptoms. Now, these symptoms, as I said earlier, have to be present during the same two-week period, and you will be able to clearly recognize that there is a change from previous functioning. So, two weeks ago, you were okay. Or, yeah, two weeks ago, you were okay. Two weeks ago, you weren't running into walls. Two weeks, two weeks ago, you weren't crying um, uncontrollably. Two weeks ago, you were eating well, you were taking care of yourself and you were exercising. Okay. So I also need to give a trigger warning here as because I am talking about the symptoms of depression, there will be talk of suicide. And that is right at the end. And you need to know this trigger warning right now. Okay. Let's continue. Let's get into it. One, the first symptom is a depressed mood felt most of the day, nearly every day, as in as indicated by yourself or observed by other people. Two, diminished interest in almost all activities that were once major components of your life. So if you're not interested in your most favorite thing in the world, that's a sign of a depressive episode. Three, significant weight loss when not dieting or significant weight loss or weight gain when not dieting. The change has to be at least 5% of body weight within a month and decreased or increased appetite nearly every day. So if you're the type of person who doesn't normally eat a lot and you're suddenly eating a lot or vice versa, then that could be a sign of a depressive episode. Number four, insomnia or hypersomnia. Insomnia is the failure to sleep properly, whether that be getting to sleep or staying asleep. And hypersomnia is the ability to, is the inability to stay awake during the day. So you just need naps constantly during the day, every day. Five, psychomotor agitation. This one is best described as real restlessness and clumsiness. You may feel restless constantly or feeling like you constantly have to do something even though you don't have to do anything. And then you may feel guilty at the same time because you're not doing anything. So that real restlessness. In addition to this, you may notice your clumsiness has increased. You're dropping things. You're not picking things up properly. You're, you're running into walls, as I said earlier. Number six, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. That feeling of waking up 
and not feeling rested and then having to carry that to the end of the day. So you feel just exhausted and then you go to sleep and you wake up, but it's not gone. It's still there. That is definitely fatigue and just that constant loss of energy. I mention spoon theory very regularly, which is the idea that we have a set number of spoons in a day and each spoon is a task. Each spoon represents a task. So if you have 12 spoons in one day, you can do 12 tasks in one day. During cycles of depression, your spoon count will go down. So you may have been able to do 12 things in one day, but now you can only do five before you get tired. And if you try to do six or seven, you will just exhaust yourself. So fatigue. Feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt. Now that's one that I think we really feel hard with imposter phenomenon, with imposter syndrome, because we feel guilty for not doing things. We always feel guilty about whatever decision we make, especially if it's a decision that's going to benefit us, like deciding not to partake in a in a group project when asked because you want that time to relax. You already have so many things on in the day, you just can't squeeze that project in and you respect the fact that you cannot and so you have said no. But now you feel guilty because you said no. Mm, that's a tough one. So feelings of worthlessness as well, just feeling like when you do make an effort to do the things that you like, you feel as though your efforts are worthless. You know, it would make, it, you would often say things like, oh man, you know, like this is just terrible. I, I'm so good at doing this and right now I just can't and it's terrible. So I'm just going to get rid of it altogether. Feelings of work, worthlessness. Number eight, the diminished ability to think or concentrate nearly every day. That one is hard. It kind of feels like walking around in a fog. So somebody will come up to you and be like, hey, what do you want for lunch today? And it takes you 50, 15 minutes to decide because it's just so hard for you to focus on lunch because you're just not thinking about lunch right now. It's, it's like the least of your problems, you know. So indecisiveness because you simply can't make a decision because you just can't think properly. It's also very hard for you just to complete things. So you might be halfway through doing the dishes and then you'll just kind of stop and like, oh, I have to sit down for a minute. And then you kind of lose focus on the dishes and then you go off and do something else. And then you come back a few hours later and go, oh yeah, half those dishes. But then you don't want to do the dishes anymore because you feel guilty because you didn't finish the dishes because you wanted to take a break. Like it's... Yes, it's very, um, these symptoms really compound on each other, especially when just during your day-to-day -day grind, where you just don't feel sure of any decision that you're making and every decision you make is probably the wrong one, or at least you feel that that is the case. And the last one, remember the trigger warning? Okay, here we go. Number nine is recurrent thoughts of death. Not just fear of dying, but actually recurring thoughts of suicidal ideation. Whether it has a plan or not is not relevant. There is just thoughts of 
dying, thoughts of death, thoughts of escaping via death. This one is very important because if you're feeling like your only way out is death, it is a serious, serious red flag that needs to be addressed because it's not normal to just want to kill yourself, just to be done with everything and want to kill yourself. It's not normal at all. If you're having thoughts of death, even in an imposter depressive episode, they need to be addressed. Thoughts are thoughts, yes. We don't have to act on our thoughts, but the fact that the thought is there and is persistent is the thing that is concerning. Because th- this isn't this is where you need to reach out to somebody somebody you trust, or ideally a therapist, because they will talk to you about your feelings and they will lead you through that fogginess so you can come to understand the reasons why you're feeling that way. So those are all the de- the symptoms of depression heavy stuff. (laughs) So I also just want to quickly point out a few of these extra symptoms as a set of consequences of burnout. So this is really good. And as I go through them, you'll notice that you'll be able to make connections between major depressive disorder symptoms and symptoms of burnout. So here we go. The first one is excessive stress. Yes, absolutely. Excessive stress and guilt. Excessive guilt and stress over the situation. The next one is fatigue and insomnia. The next one is feeling sad, angry, or irritable at everything. The next one is alcohol or substance misuse. Whilst this one wasn't in the official diagnosis for depression, major depressive disorder, it is still important to recognize if there is substance misuse during burnout. The next one is heart disease. Heart disease is actually more of a physical symptom of stress, anxiety, and of course, substance abuse. The next one is high blood pressure. That is obviously caused by stress, the guilt, the anger, the sadness, the anxiety, because there's just so many thoughts going on in your head. And the last one is vulnerability to illnesses. Now, whilst this wasn't on the list of symptoms for major depressive disorder, I felt it was necessary to put it down in here because vulnerability to illnesses means that your immune system has been compromised. It most likely is compromised due to the habits that you are indulging in or the lack of sleep or the stress that you are feeling. Stress, fatigue, insomnia, alcohol abuse, all of these things contribute to your vulnerability to illnesses simply because they affect your immune system. So that was a lot of crazy symptoms. But you can see that when we talk about job stress and when we talk about the imposter depressive episode, we can clearly see that there are links to what a official depressive episode sounds like. So let's talk now 
about what we can do when burnout sets in. I'll see you in topic three. Okay, welcome back to topic three. This one's fairly fast. I will just be listing a few fun things that you can do to help alleviate the amount of stress that comes into our lives and help just quiet that negative presence of your imposter in your brain. The first thing to do is to evaluate your options. The first thing you need to do is find out what options you have. Even if you feel that you are in a situation where there is no options, there are actually options. Somebody that you can speak to could potentially be your work supervisor if you feel like you're taking on too much work. It's actually funny because in the workplace, it will often be more respected if you confidently say, no, I cannot do all of these tasks. Than, un than to timidly say, ah, uh, yeah, I think I can do all that. Okay. If you are confident in, in learning the word no and learning about how you can protect yourself by saying no, then you can change and create more options. So talk to a supervisor if you need to speak to someone at work and say to them, I don't feel that I'm getting enough support. You could say, I don't feel that I have a fair workload. If you need to write down the things that you want to say to your supervisor and then bring it in on a piece of paper and read it out, do so. And that's a fantastic way of putting all your concerns down and then approaching them because you'll have everything written. Often, if you just make a mental list, you'll go in and you'll forget one or two things. But if you have a list that's been written down, well, you have everything in front of you, all that information that you can access instantly. So evaluate your options. Talk to your supervisor. Talk to your partner. If you're having issues with family, like you feel like you're not getting enough help at home, talk to your partner. Talk to your parents if, you, if they are around and they can help out, especially when it comes to kids. People often forget just how resourceful grandparents are. <laughs> I live in, I live about 3,000 kilometers away from my parents. So for me, unfortunately, I have to pay for somebody to give me a little bit of time off. And that's okay. That was the choice I made. But I generated the option of paying for someone to take care of my children if I need time off and I recognize when I need time off. I've done that work. I've done that leg work. So that's why I'm, well, that's why I'm sitting here. <laughs> okay. So evaluate your options. Cool. The next thing you can do is to look for support. As we just spoke about, we can reach out to friends. We can reach out to our loved ones. We can re reach out to our supervisors. We can talk about ways to help you cope because Sometimes we just need to ask for help. And I think that's the toughest thing when it comes to having an imposter. Because when you have an imposter, you have this idea in your brain that you can't ask for help and that you've got to do it all on your own. And that is terrifying. Nobody can do it on their own. Nobody can go it alone. It's too difficult. 
people are our greatest resource. They're also our worst resource because they're the ones that can do the most damage as well. But greatest. They are our greatest and most powerful resource. And sometimes all you have to do is just put your hand up and say, hey, I need help. So seek support. Now, the next thing is, and I feel like I'm a broken record when I say this, but exercise. Now, when I say exercise, I don't mean you have to put on a Jane Fonda workout. I don't mean that Richard Simmons, Richard Simmons, you don't have to do a workout. You don't have to put a tape on and follow somebody on the TV. You don't have to get outside and jog. You don't have to go out and join the gym. You don't have to do any of that. But getting out just in your backyard, if you have a backyard, if you don't, getting out and going around the block does help, (laughs) but just getting out into a space where you can move around, do some stretches, and just get out into the sunlight if possible. Get out into the sunlight and get some vitamin D. We often forget just how powerful sunshine and fresh air is. It is hugely beneficial. Sometimes when I'm feeling down, all I need to do is go outside for five minutes with my shoes off into the sun. And that's it. And I come back inside and it's like, oh, wow, I do actually feel a little better. Exercise is helpful because of so many reasons. I'll skim over a few, obviously, but I think we all know the importance of exercise. We all know that it pushes more blood to your brain. We all know that it helps for focus, helps for regulating our bodies. It helps for food digestion. It helps for stress, especially if you're just like on a nice long nature walk. And hey, it, it's a great distractor. It helps take your mind off of work. I, um, a good friend of mine attends the gym in her lunch hour. So she'll go to work in the morning, she'll go to the gym and her lunch break, and then she'll come back again and complete the rest of her day at work. And I just think that is fantastic. Not only do I just go, wow, such discipline, (laughs) such discipline, so cool. But I think that's just a fantastic way of taking the edge off if you're, especially if you've had a stressful morning. And gee, we all know how stressful mornings can get at work, hey? (laughs) Next one is another stock standard. Get some sleep. I think this one is very counterproductive, but I will still recommend it anyway. Not because sleep is bad. I think sleep is fantastic. I sleep all the time. But um, more that it is difficult to sleep when you are depressed, especially if you have hypersomnia and it's hard for you to stay awake during the day. So rather than giving you the recommendation to just simply get some more sleep, I will give you the recommendation of work on developing good sleeping patterns. And what I mean by this is work on sleeping at nighttime. Work on getting yourself in a state of comfort before you go to sleep, like a nighttime routine, by taking electronics away, by doing sitting in low light. Some people will sit in candlelight, which um, feels a bit dangerous to me, so don't do that. <laughs> I do not recommend sitting in a bedroom with a candle at all, ever, 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 don't do that. But having a lamp on low is okay. But sitting in a dark room, sitting in a nice quiet room, meditating, all that sort of stuff, all that sort of stuff is so helpful in getting you into a state of readiness and sleep. 
I love talking about sleep and how to get a good night's sleep and, and reasons why you're waking up at night time and all of that. So I do actually have a video on my YouTube channel, which you should totally check out, which is called, uh, I think it's 16 realistic reasons why you're waking up at night time. That one has those 16 reasons and also some suggestions on how you can get a good night's sleep. So do check it out. <laughs> so yes, get some sleep. The last one is of course, practicing mindfulness. Yes, I know mindfulness, you hear it everywhere because this is just the age of self-care at the moment, but mindfulness is very good. It's a very important component in understanding yourself because when you focus on things like the breath, it's uh, your breath flow and being aware of the current sensations in your body, you can get to know your physical reactions to stressful situations. So rather than getting into a stressful situation and thinking to yourself, oh my God, I'm so sweaty, it's terrible, and I'm you know, and you start to get more anxious and more anxious about how sweaty you are or how you're looking or how you're acting or how you're portraying, whether people are noticing how sweaty you are, etc., etc. Bringing your attention back to your flow of breath and putting distance between yourself and the things or the thoughts that are stressing you out makes you aware that you are sweaty, but also at the same time makes you aware and lets your body do what it needs to do to get you out of that sweaty state. Sweat, sweaty. I get very sweaty when I'm nervous, especially my feet. My feet just get so sweaty and it's just like, oh, it's so gross. Yuck. Anyway. Other things that we can do also include journaling. I talk about journaling so much, so I won't go into too much detail here, but you can do things like if you are worried that you're eating too much, you can start a food journal. If you are worried that you're not sleeping well, you can start a sleep journal. If you are have so many things that are keeping you up at nighttime, you can start a worry journal. There are so many journals that you can do in any format, because every format is correct, whether it be a Google Doc, whether it be a, piece, a scrap of paper, whether it be written in pencil, pen, crayon, it doesn't matter because it's your journal, so it's right and it's right for you. But journaling is fantastic because it gets so many of those bad things in your brain out and onto paper. And it also keeps you accountable. It keeps you accountable for yourself. So cool, huh? It's like a twofold benefit. Uh, the, the trick is just getting into a habit of writing in a journal. And I will tell you right now that the secret to getting into a good habit is just setting up repetition and then rewarding yourself afterwards. So put an alarm on your phone that goes off every night at exactly the same time, telling you to do a journal entry. And then after you've done the journal entry, reward yourself with something cool or something that you like. And that will help set up the habit. Other things we can do also include just eating the right foods. If you don't take multivitamins, do take multivitamins because they are very handy in replenishing stores of vitamins that you may have lost during your depressive episode um, where you weren't eating the right foods, so your body was just working on whatever reserves it has in its system. There are obviously vitamins that we don't store in our system, but most of them we do. Vitamin C we don't, 
that one I know for sure. And there are the and there are obviously others out there that we don't, but many of them do as well. So rest assured, if you have a two week cycle of bad eating, you're probably still very healthy because you have a lot of reserves already in your system. But just remember. If that is the case, though, taking a multivitamin for a short amount of time can help replenish those stocks again. And also, of course, eating a balanced diet. And the last one that I have written on my list, which I already said earlier, but I will say again because it is incredibly important, just go outside and get some fresh air and some sunshine. Vitamin D, a little bit of clean air, only have to stand outside five, ten minutes. If you live in a cold climate, you need to be outside for around half an hour because there's less sun available to you. But most of us can get a full vitamin D daily dosage in 15 minutes, I believe it is. So go outside, get some sunshine, breathe the fresh air, listen to the surroundings around you and just be aware of your present moment, who you are as a person. That was very pseudoscience-y, wasn't it? This is why I'm a certified life coach. Ow! Anyway. Well, that's the end of topic three. I hope you enjoyed that. I think we'll move on now to the conclusion and next week's topics. Okay, well, that is the end of this episode of Beat Your Imposter. I hope that you have come away with a little bit more understanding of burnout, of the imposter depressive episode, how the two are linked and, um, you know, I would consider them maybe not exactly the same, but very similar. And of course, ways that we can help prevent a burnout and just to get us through a bad burnout or a bad imposter depressive episode next week next week we're going to talk about a lot more fun constructive things now so we most of this this podcast so far has been teaching you and giving you information about the backgrounds and the possible things that could be causing your imposter to get really big and tall now we're going to talk about some ways that we can actually shrink that bugger that little bugger that big bugger actually (laughs) so we're going to talk about ways that we can teach ourselves to take a compliment we're going to talk about self-sabotage and we're going to talk about how to work through criticism so on behalf of me Eden, I'd like to thank you for being with me here today. If you like my content and want to check out more, I have videos on YouTube under the name Eden V. I also have a website which has lots of cool stuff in there too, and some downloadables, like some self-help worksheets and things like that that you can work through. And I also have another website named Zombies Eat Grains. This is where I put a lot of my creative cookery. So do check those out. I do a lot of content on the internet. And I hope to continue doing a lot more content on the internet. But thank you again for being here with me today. And I will see you next week. Ta-ta!